Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast, and I hope everybody is doing well. This is Steve. I host these podcasts uh, as they come out right here on WJMS Media. And I want to thank you all for downloading and listening in as we go over what's going on in the political realm here in the United States this week. So let's start it off as we always do. Let's uh, recap our current status with the COVID pandemic. Uh, As of this week, the United States has 79.2 million cases. 957,000 people have died as we continue to inch toward that infamous one million uh, person mark. Uh, None of us want to see that, but we are inching to it, um, you know, week over week. Uh, 555 million people have been vaccinated and 215 million of those are fully vaccinated. So that's a good sign. We continue to make progress on that front as well, Uh, but there's still more to do and further to go. So if you have the opportunity, Please get your vaccination. If you're already vaccinated, don't forget to get that booster. And uh, let's keep working to knock this pandemic down to a slight headache level instead of the crisis level that we have it at. All right, um, let's move into what I want to talk about uh, in this episode. I'm going to start it off and uh, let you know that I received... Uh, a communication, an email from someone who asked me uh, about the new um, practice that we're implementing here on Fired Up. For those of you that may have been listening for a long period back when we were you know, doing on WJMS radio, uh, and now that we are into the new WJMS media platform, uh, you'll know that I frequently would issue what's called a call to action which is a, an item, a task, or some information uh, for you to review and act on. Uh, and uh, we've just recently expanded that to include what I call practice activism. And the, the, the message that I got was asking me what exactly I meant by that. Uh, well, uh, as I said, we have often had calls to action which gives you a information or a process or a task that you can investigate on your own and implement. Uh, the practice activism takes that one step further in when you have identified or ha- we have identified to you something that needs to be done, then uh, the practice of that is to engage and do uh, whatever you can to make that uh, action item uh, reality. Uh, for example, if the call to action is saying, you know, getting out and, and increasing voter participation, which we've talked about a lot, then practicing activism would be uh, getting, getting out there, knocking on doors, walking your neighborhood, uh, you know, engaging with your friends, your family, um, and, and those around you on, you know, not just the need to be registered and to vote, but, you know, the the actual steps that need to be taken, whether it's verifying your status through one of the many sources out there uh, that we've talked about, such as checking your registration status on vote.org or going to ballotpedia.com 
or any one of a handful of uh, locations out there that can help you identify what your current voter status is. But once you identified that status, what do you do then? Well, the, the steps are, are you know, straightforward. They're described on the websites. Basically, you want to uh, go down to your local voter registration office or go online. Most of the websites that uh, I've identified, and I will post links to them on the uh, Fired Up Facebook page so that you can find them. And uh, most of those uh, locations, whether in person or on the web, have a process where you can, in fact, get registered to vote uh, online or in person. And the, the practice uh, of this activism is to go out and make that happen. Uh, it is something that does not take a lot of time. It is not difficult to do, but you know, it is something that is necessary to do. As we've often talked about on this, this program, um, there have been a tremendous number of changes, uh, both positive and negative, uh, but unfortunately more negatives than positive, uh, in terms of actions that impact uh, our ability to exercise our right to vote. And, you know, I, I could go on for hours and hours about the importance and the value and the benefits of uh, everybody who is eligible to vote, to be out and vote. You know, we have talked about in the past the fact that the uh, 2020 presidential election was actually decided in a small number of so-called swing states by around, um, you know, 70,000 votes in terms of the electoral college determination. You may have heard, you know, about how uh, President Biden uh, got almost uh, 8 million or, or just over 8 million more votes than uh, former President Trump in the 2020 election. And you might think that, well, you know, that's a pretty wide margin of victory. But uh, you have to remember that the popular vote, that is the votes that we the people cast, don't actually directly determine who wins the presidential election. In, in our system here, and, and for those of you who uh, may be listening uh, via your link through Mintwave over in the UK and may not be familiar with the American system, uh, in a nutshell, we have uh, the popular vote that uh, everybody votes for, and it is the vote tallies in the state that determine how many uh, of what are called electors, uh, which are, are individuals who are uh, tasked under the Constitution with representing the voters of the individual states based on the outcome of the election. Well, you know, so while you know, Joe Biden may have gotten 8 million more uh, votes in the popular election, the Electoral College uh, election was actually determined in uh, about five or six states by uh, around, call it 100,000 votes or so. So the, the victory, the margin of victory um, for Biden uh, was really a whole lot narrow, narrower than what the popular vote suggested. And you know, that 
you know, forms the basis of why you saw so much activity from the Republican uh, contenders that challenged votes in only a few states. These were the so-called swing states where the votes were actually close in terms of determining the electors. Uh, if you've also been following the news, you've heard about uh, what the efforts uh, surrounding the insurrection on January 6th uh, was and what their aim was. It was to overturn the count of electors that determine who becomes president of the United States and uh, create a different or an alternate uh, slate of electors that would have uh, favored uh, Donald Trump. And basically, even though you know, Biden would have overwhelmingly run, won the popular vote uh, based on you know, these so-called new electors, uh, Donald Trump would actually uh, have been uh, elected president under the way our system works. And if you, you know, as I said, if you've been listening to the news, you will have heard a lot of talk uh, in you know, the last 10 months uh, of Republican efforts to nominate uh, alternate slates of electors in various states. Uh, you've also seen, and we've talked about here on this show, the fact that the Republican Party is actively seeking and has filed legislation in uh uh, 22 states to change the process of actually running the elections in those states. And, and again, another piece of fact that, that plugs into this is understand that the election process uh, is not controlled by the federal government. The federal government can set some uh, boundaries and some rules, and they have uh, on many occasions governing uh, general uh, operating principles. For example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 set standards for uh, what, uh, what things can be done uh, by the states in terms of running elections and, and protecting the votes of the people. The federal government cannot tell a state how it conducts its election. That's forbidden under the Constitution. Elections are run by the states. Our, found, our founders wrote that into the Constitution specifically to prevent uh, a, a unified federal level entity from you know, running the elections, from influencing how the elections were conducted in the states and what the outcomes were. So what we've seen uh, over the, the recent uh, months, over the last uh, years, year and a half since the 2020 election, is that Republicans are looking to not attack the voting process itself, but basically to uh, overturn and, and create a new method for the states to handle their individual elections. Uh, for example, in, um, in Florida and in Texas and Arizona and some other states, laws have been proposed and bills are being considered that would limit the powers of the secretaries of state in those states uh, who are tasked with uh, tabulating the votes, 
um, running the election process and reporting the final votes of the states to Congress for ratification you know, every four years to determine who the president is. Well, there are several states where laws have been enacted that basically strip that power from the Secretary of State um, and allow the state legislators to actually perform that task. So what does that mean? Well, it means simply this. Um, let's say we're talking about uh, the state of Georgia, because that is where this is, is being applied and has been applied, and, and the laws have been um, passed and signed. So the people of the state of Georgia um, elect candidate A, candidate Bill, um, on, on the Democratic side, to be their, their winner for President of the United States. The Republicans uh, have, you know, candidate William, uh, who, you know, came in second. But what would happen is the state legislature could determine that they believe the vote was uh, incorrect or corrupt or, you know, in some other way invalid and basically throw those results out and through the process of putting in their own slate of election people and electors uh, report to the Congress that the Republican candidate actually uh, won even though the Democratic can candidate received the majority of the votes, thereby essentially nullifying the votes of Democrats in that state. This is the battle that's going on in this country in many states there are um, some 300 plus uh, legislative actions or bills that are pending in state legislatures around the country to do just that. So, you know, basically it is a way to, to eliminate the process portion of um, the presidential elections uh, or, you know, federal level elections that are handled by the state basically negating the determined procedures that were laid down by our founding fathers in the Constitution. And that's a very dangerous, very dangerous uh, proposition. Uh, one of the, the fundamental tenets of American democracy is the notion of one person, one vote, that the people vote in each state the state, by virtue of who won the majority of votes in that state, assigns its number of electors to represent that candidate from the party that won. And that is what is reported to Congress um, and has the vice president, who sits as president of the Senate, uh, ratify and count the votes that were reported by the states, thereby determining who was elected president. So even though the people don't directly vote for their candidate for president, as, as many other democratic countries in the world do, uh, it, it is handled in this two-tier process so that the, the representatives of the people at the state levels tell the federal government who the states 
have chosen to be the president of the you know, United States collectively. Uh, if we go to a system where the you know, electors can be arbitrarily assigned by you know, each state legislature depending you know, and based on their political will, then essentially it eliminates what the, the value and the, the necessity for a popular vote. You know, if the you know, Democratic uh, Electoral Committee in the state determines that they are picking the Democrat president to report to Congress as the winner of that state, regardless of whether or not that Democratic candidate got the majority of votes in the state or not, uh, or Republicans, same thing, then, in fact, they have nullified uh, and disenfranchised you know, the entire Democratic or, or Republican, if the roles are reversed, they have nullified and disenfranchised all of those votes. Basically, they're saying, we don't care who you voted for, we're going to put up who we want to put up because we're in charge. We're in, we're in control of the state legislature. And that's not the way it was designed to work in this country. And it is something that, you know, whether you are Democrat or Republican, that you should be very concerned about and be exercising all of the pressure, hence our call to action, uh, exercising all of the pressure you can put upon your elected officials at the state level as well as at the federal level uh, to make sure that there isn't a mechanism whereby the votes of the people regardless of party, but the votes of the people can be bypassed based on some other criteria for selecting the, the victor in a given state. Uh, that is a very serious problem. Uh, it essentially, as, as people have said, and it's not uh, too hyperbolic to say this, it essentially ends uh, the, the notion of American democracy because it is now being determined by, you know, instead of, you know, 188 million people who voted in 2020, uh, you know, 79 or 80 million of those votes were just swept off the table because, you know, the opposing candidate's party decided that's who they want to be president, even though they may not have won the popular vote at the state's levels and therefore the states report what the people tell them to report, uh, that goes away. And if that goes away, essentially our representative democracy uh, is mortally wounded. Uh, it, 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 I don't know if it is a, the de facto end of American democracy, but it is definitely a, um, a critical wound to our democratic system. Uh, the idea that the founders had in mind was to take steps to make sure that, you know, uh, power couldn't be aggregated in groups that would basically nullify the power of the people, of the electorate. They believed, and, you know, as many would say, as believers in the Constitution would say, rightly so, that the real power in the United States of America lies in the states and specifically with the voters 
in the states. The people decide who will lead them. That is the operating principle of how our democracy uh, is constituted year after year after year. Now, what we have seen over the last, uh, you know, 10 years, definitely, and over the last 40 or 50 years uh, in, in a broader sense, is a determination by one side of the equation that they don't want to live by that. They want to be able to handpick who they want to lead the entire country uh, that is you know, benefiting to them. So they are putting their, their wants over the will of the people. They are saying, you know, we, we know what's best. Uh, it, it doesn't matter who you voted for. We're going to pick the person that we want to be president of the United States, or we're going to pick the people that we want to be in charge of the U.S. House and the Senate and your state legislator, your governors and your state senators and your state reps on down the line uh, to your city or local level. And that's not the way our democracy was designed, nor was it intended to work. So, you know, there, there is a lot, I'm sorry, there are a lot of people who are, you know, raising the alarm on this process, uh, saying, you know, this is a bad thing. And there are, you know, other people who are ignoring those cries and saying, basically, we don't care. This is what we want. And, you know, that we is a very small group uh, of the overall group of Americans that vote. And this is something that whether whichever party you are, it doesn't matter if, you, if you're, you know, a Democrat right now or a Republican right now, because, you know, the changes that are being put in place will be accessible to both parties going forward. So, you know, it, it can very well be that while the Republicans may take a, a, an advantage um, right now uh, and, you know, for, you know, the, the, the next coming election cycles, at some point the tables may turn and the Democrats may get into the positions of power uh, and, you know, and do exactly the same thing to their benefit. So what does that leave for the people? Uh, we just turn into spectators watching this, you know, this tennis match go on year over year over year and uh, basically losing our power to control how our country is governed by people we elect. And uh, in my opinion, and, you know, the, the role of this show is to identify that issue, give you the facts you know, underlying it, and, you know, while not telling you how you should conclude, but giving you as, as close as I can to an unbiased uh, approach to it so that you can make your own decision. As we often say on this show, as I say constantly on this show, you have to do your own due diligence. You know, if you are getting your, you know, information from one side of the equation or another, you need to, in order to make an educated decision, you've got to listen to all sides. And, you know, I, I, 
I've had this discussion with people, uh, you know, in, in my circles and, you know, they tell me, well, I, you know, I don't want to listen to MSNBC. They're a bunch of liberal crybabies or I don't want to listen to Fox News. They are, you know, whatever they are or, you know, OAN or Newsmax or, or Breitbart or any of these uh, sources that people listen to, that they don't want to listen to them because they don't like them. They don't like their, you know, their view or their perspective. What you have to understand, and, and as I said, um, you know, maybe tooting my horn a little bit, but I say this constantly. The truth is not in the, the camp of the right. The truth is not 100% in the camp of the left. The truth is all around. All of them have a kernel of truth that it is our job to be diligent to seek out and understand that if you listen to the full circle of discussion on a topic, the truth actually uh, you will find it to be common in many of the discussions and the truth actually lies in the middle. So, you know, we often make a call to action that you have to listen to not only the, the sources you listen to on a regular basis, but you have to balance that by listening to sources on the other side of the equation. And, you know, you have to listen all the way around that circle and use that objective third ear and find out where the truth lies, what the truth is, what are the common factors uh, behind what is being discussed. And when you find that truth, it typically will be somewhere in the middle. And that's what you need to use to base your decisions on. You can, you know, follow a, a conservative ideology or you can follow a liberal ideology or progressive ideology or libertarian ideology. But at the end of the day, the truth that all of them have to uh, aspire to and admit to lies in the middle of that circle. So the, the activism you need to practice, you know, the, the goal that we call for, the action we call for, is to get involved in the voting process where you live. The action, the activism that goes with that is to take the initiative to go out and dig for the truth, to, to listen to uh, sources that may be opposed to you politically, that may be opposed to your way of thinking, but still to as objectively as possible. Listen to those sources and, you know, glean the truth out of them compare it to what is being said you know so that that's how this works and you know right now we are in the midst of a a real-time real-world experiment on this process in looking at the laws that are being proposed around the country for changing the voting process um, you know and as much as the uh, the the liberal side of the equation uh, says these laws are draconian, that they are hurting people, they actually are also doing some positive things. You know, uh, the the laws in Texas actually did extend uh, voting hours. Same thing with uh, the the changes to the election processes in Georgia. 
there actually were some benefits that were done along with the things that you know got taken away so while they may have reduced the number of polling places or drop boxes you know by some you know ridiculous number uh, they also extended uh, early voting days uh, longer than what it was you know there there's usually there's a grain of good in just about all of these laws and we have to make sure that we we find them we are aware of them we spread the word about them so that you know we can utilize that and you know at the end of the day make sure that we get out to vote so my closing thought on on that segment is just that we have to do whatever it is we need to do in order to get out and get our vote in register get registered go vote make sure your vote gets counted uh, so that you know the the outcome is clear as to what the voice of the people have called for uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, uh, it is critical that you get out to vote. It's as clear as that, um, you know, and don't let anyone, you know, block you or dissuade you uh, or discourage or distract you from exercising your constitutional right to vote. So that's the, the activism that needs to be practiced based on the the call to action that we're issuing you know let's get out and vote we need to make sure that we get uh, everyone out to vote that is able to vote that they get registered that we do whatever we need to do to help them get registered to vote to get them to the polls on election day and to make sure that their votes get counted no matter what the obstacles are if you have to drive further or stand in line a little bit longer so be it get it done that's that is our activism that we need to do all right so um we will touch on this again and uh we'll uh have a real quick little break here and then when we come back we're going to talk about the uh, state of the union speech which occurred last week it was given by president biden uh, and the republican response to that speech some interesting points came out of it uh, and it is something that we're going to talk about here on the Fired Up podcast. So come back after the break and we'll dive right into that. Hey, folks, it's Steve. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to my podcast. It's called Fired Up and it's where we get into the mechanics and look under the hood and behind the curtain of the politics here in the United States. Please go and grab other episodes from our archive sites if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. All right, and let's continue. So this past week, uh, President Biden gave his State of the Union address, uh, and this is you know, uh, required by the Constitution. It is one of the key duties of the president to come before a joint session of the House and Senate uh, in Washington and present the so-called State of the Union Address, basically uh, to give the report card on how the United States is doing. So uh, his address this year occurred on March 2nd, 
and uh, by all accounts, uh, it was a a good speech. Um, obviously, people who are you know not fans of Joe Biden uh, spent a good amount of time picking apart uh, little you know trips and snags, um, and you know you have to keep in mind that uh, President Biden has a stutter. He's had one uh, throughout his life. And uh, sometimes when giving a speech, particularly a, a lengthy speech, uh, he will uh, get tongue-tied or trip over his words uh, or, you know, have some breaks and so forth. Um, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. I mean, overall, you know, I listened to the speech. Overall, he communicated it very well. He got his points across very clearly. Uh, obviously, you know, Joe Biden is no, you know, world-class orator like, you know, FDR or John Kennedy or, you know, even um, Ronald Reagan and, and, of course, you know, Barack Obama. Um they are, you know, they are higher level orators than Joe Biden is, but he got his message out there. He got his message communicated. And I think, you know, he did a very good job. You know, he, he did uh, his level best with the tools that he has. So without, you know, recapping blow by blow, um, basically, he opened up the speech with a recap of where things stand in the conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine and uh, talked very clearly about the role of the United States uh, and you know, our allies uh, in this struggle. And he's been very clear that while he will not commit uh, putting American boots on the ground in Ukraine, he is committing American resources uh, in support of the Ukrainian effort, and we have seen that progress over the course of the you know week, ten days or so that uh, this conflict has been going on. Uh, there has been you know an allocation of uh, outpouring or an out outpouring of monetary assistance, of materiel assistance, and humanitarian aid. Uh, that is going into the the Ukraine theater, and he he talked about those efforts in the speech. He talked about building coalitions of you know freedom loving nations from Europe and the Americas to Asia and Africa uh, to stand up to Vladimir Putin. Uh, one of the things that he pointed out in the speech is you know Putin was was thinking that the uh, NATO alliance and the European Union uh, would stay fragmented and divided. And what has come out of this conflict is the exact opposite. The NATO alliance has been strengthened and, and structurally reinforced and is stronger than it has been in several decades. Uh, the European Union has been speaking with one clear voice. Uh, so, you know, his idea that, you know, the, the West would be too fractured and fragmented to mount a cohesive response to his invasion of Ukraine has, you know, largely been uh, false. Now, granted, 
and we, we have to be clear here. The military might of the Russian Federation is uh, probably 10 times as, as large as the military might of the country of Ukraine. But what Putin looks like he has underestimated is the, the will of the Ukrainian people, the tenacity and ferocity with which they are fighting for their country, uh, and you know w- which you know is is totally admirable and and inspiring, uh, and the fact that uh, while the NATO and European Union uh, were expected by Putin to remain fragmented they have actually gone in the totally opposite direction. NATO has been very unified, and the EU has been uh, coming together as a coalition uh, of partners in facing uh, Putin and his forces and helping to defend Ukraine. And President Biden spoke uh, about that in uh, good detail in his State of the Union speech. Um, you know, he was clear about, you know, efforts being made to choke off Russia's access to technology and, you know, sapping its economic strength and weaken its military for years to come. He outlined strategies uh, of, you know, economic sanctions that limit uh, Russia's ability and access to uh, global funds. Uh, and these things are, are going to be impacting the Russian economy for years to come. Uh, it's clear that uh, the, the unified efforts of the, the U.S. and its European allies uh, is going to have a devastating effect on the Russian economy, and it has already. Um, you know, in the speech, he announced that, you know, some other things he brought up tonight or in, in his speech and quoting, I am announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding an additional squeeze on their economy. Uh, he cited that the ruble as of a week ago had lost 30 percent of its uh, value. And in the weeks since, that amount has probably more closely doubled that. Um, so he, he spent a good, a good portion of the start of his speech talking about the Russia-Ukrainian um, conflict going on. And, you know, a, a very clear-eyed, um, no BS uh, report on what's going on. Um, you know, while the the praise for the defenders of Ukraine uh, is is tremendous and is continuing and is deeply felt, uh, you know, they are uh, outnumbered. And, you know, it, it may be that, you know, Russia will overrun Ukraine. But as one strategist, and, and I've heard this a couple of times, uh, one strategist has said, uh, it is one thing to conquer a country. It is an entirely different thing to hold onto it. So, you know, you may you know, overrun or Russia may overrun 
the Ukraine, but what it's going to cost them to hold that country, you know, for you know a, a, a year or two years or five years or ten years, um, is is a whole another animal, and you know would likely you know break the bank of of Russia, which is already weakened by the economic sanctions, uh, and and we have seen this, you know we have seen regimes that have been overtaken by another country, and what has happened is the country that took it over just was not able to hold on to the territory they seized. We, we've seen this play out, you know, over the, over the decades. Um, so, you know, he, he moved on to talk about um, the, the jobs that have been created. Uh, he talked about the benefits of the American Rescue Plan uh, and its help for working people and that it left no one behind. Uh, he talked about the economic growth rate uh, over the past year, which was 5.7%, and was the strongest growth in nearly 40 years. Um, and you know the changes that are coming to the economy that hasn't worked for the working people of this nation for a long time. So, you know, he's he laid out uh, the plans that he and Vice President Harris have uh, for the uh, bringing economic growth back to or expanding the growth of the United States, you know, and he talked about the infrastructure. He talked about the, the roads, bridges, and airports uh, getting needed improvements, uh, you know, and the, the key point that he made mention of, and this, this needs to be referenced and be mentioned, is that uh, the American Rescue Plan and the first phase of the economic stimulus package were in fact a bipartisan effort, that there were uh, votes on both sides of the aisle that, um, that went for these deals. And that's a good sign because it does mean that the, you know, the, the Congress, although divided, does have the ability to come together when the needs of the American people and the needs of the American economy and our country uh, need them to work as one unit. He went on to talk about some of his initiatives in, in infrastructure and job creation here in this country. Uh, he did make mention of the fact that uh, in the, the first year of his presidency, we have seen a record number of new jobs created, but as he was saying, that's you know, just the beginning uh, he mentioned in the speech that Intel was going to be building a uh, its $20 billion uh, manufacturing plant, uh, which will generate you know, 10,000 jobs and be worth you know, $100 billion of investment. Uh, and you know, that's, that's just one aspect of some of the things coming out. Um, you know, he's talked about... Um, Re-initializing and re-strengthening uh, the the theme of "Made in America" uh, to be more than just a slogan, to be that you know that that national call to action, that national uh, activism uh, to to increase products and increase uh, and expand companies and do the things that help uh, this country grow in all of the most important ways. 
He also spoke about other things that uh, drive the, the, the cost of living here in this country and, you know, honestly, you know, talked about the impact that uh, the increase in inflation uh, is having on our economy and what we can do about it. Um, and he also included uh, discussions on some of his plans on some of the, the key so-called uh, kitchen table issues that Americans deal with every day. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, got uh, a big notice and in, in one of the many uh, rounds of standing ovations was he talks about cutting the cost of prescription drugs. And he cited the example of insulin. You know, one in 10 Americans has diabetes. Um, and, you know, he talked about uh, a young 13-year-old uh, boy he met in Virginia. Uh, both he and, and his father have type 1 diabetes, which means they use insulin every day. And insulin costs about $10 a vial to make. But drug um, drug companies charge families, you know, like that young man and his father, up to 30 times more than what it costs to make it. And I mean, I can I can speak to that from my own experience. The cost of diabetic medication uh, in in some forms is ridiculously expensive, um, you know, and he used that to illustrate how there there are ways that we can improve the life of Americans uh, through you know uh, implementing some cost controls with pharmacy com companies you know implementing some some uh, innovation techniques in terms of manufacturing and and so forth that you know while also uh, benefiting everyday Americans would also go and drive the economy, the engine of this country forward and upward um, and, and just make everything, you know, easier and, and better. Uh, he talked about cutting the cost of child care and, you know, this would allow for uh, more people to afford to put their young children into childcare so that they could work again, increasing the number of jobs that are are created and filled in this country. Uh, so you know his his overall State of the Union speech was a very forward looking, and I mean I've I've just given you just a couple of the points. Uh, the speech was about an hour long, and and it's you know well more than six thousand words. Uh, so. Uh, you can go online and, and look it up and read it or listen to it again for yourself. Um, and, and like I said, you know, he's, he's no great orator. Um, you know, he, he's no Barack Obama when it comes to giving a speech. But this was a well-delivered um, speech, even if you take into account um, a, a little heckling episode from two of the more radical Republican elected officials um, that we have, and I won't um, I won't name names, Green Fobert, um, and and we'll leave it there. Uh, so you know that that is the gist of President Biden's State of the Union speech. Uh, there were things that he left out, uh, and and some people have mentioned it. 
but overall, he covered the key points that are impacting uh, the the American lives today. And you know, as I said, he has genuinely or generally received good marks for the speech that he delivered. Now, each year when the president gives his speech, uh, the opposition party or the party out of power has the opportunity to uh, present a response. So this year, since the Democrats uh, are in the White House, the Republicans gave response to President Biden's State of the Union address, and it was delivered by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, and uh, it, it was a, a pretty good response. It was better than um, ones that have, have occurred in, in the immediate past, both through the Trump administration and back into the uh, Obama administration before that. Um, you know, and, you know, generally with these speeches, uh, they look to go, you know, in real time and, you know, pick at all the little threads in the, the president's speech and, and pull on those and create, you know, talking points on them. Um, you know, and this was no different. Uh, Governor Reynolds, as you know, the articles are saying, um, honed in on some things that, you know, Biden didn't talk about, uh, particularly uh, schools, parental rights, uh, you know, and, you know, the, the focus issue for Republicans during the pandemic um, and talking about, you know, mask mandates and, um, you know, which she brought up, blasting um, the Democrats for requiring masks in school while some go unmasked themselves. Um, Iowa, as she said, was the first state in the nation to require schools to open in person during the pandemic. Um, you know, and she urged uh, President Biden to, you know, put there to put his faith in the American people. Um, that, you know, they know the, you know, the way that needs to be walked and so forth. So as is typical with these response speeches, they are generally much, much shorter than the State of the Union speech. And it is an opportunity for the opposing party to, to hit some high points. And, you know, that was not lost uh, on the effort uh, made by Governor Reynolds in the response to President Biden. Um, you know, and <laughs> as is as is is typical, they they, like I said, find a couple of threads and try and exploit them out to major uh, to major issues. Um, and you know, Reynolds said in in the Biden administration, quote, believes inflation is a high class problem. But uh, that wasn't true decades ago, and it isn't now, uh, you know, reference to Biden's uh, years in Congress. Uh, and, and as she said, I can tell you it's an everybody's problem. Uh, and she continued, quote, I saw moms and dads paychecks buy them less and less. I watched working people choosing which essentials to take home and which ones to leave behind. And now President Biden's decision have a whole new generation feeling that same pain. 
So, you know, in a sense, carrying on the Republican message that uh, President Biden is solely to blame for inflation um, and not counting the impact of that little thing called the, the pandemic and the economic shutdown that came of that and the increase in prices as a result of supply shortages that we are still feeling, feeling and supply chain headaches that we are still dealing with that raise the prices on you know, everyday goods and services, thereby causing inflation or being a result of inflation. You know, she also talked about and honed in on schools and parents' rights, something that has been a focus for Republicans during the pandemic and argu- arguably helped Governor Gavin Youngkin uh, win in Virginia in November. And stick a pin in that little nugget because you're going to hear that more and more and more as we get closer to the midterms. Um, she blasted Democrats for requiring masks in school while some go unmasked themselves. As I said, Iowa's the first state in the nation to require schools to open in person during the pandemic. Uh, And, you know, she also uh, urged President Biden to put his faith in the American people uh, who have never waved in your belief in this country, regardless of who leads it. Um, You know, and talked about uh, and, and comments received from Republican National Committee Chairwoman Rona McDaniel said the president's speech showed he fails to grasp the hurt his policies have caused American families, which rings kind of hollow in the post-Trump, uh, post-Republican administration uh, situation where they have made choices routinely that uh, did not have the benefit of the majority of working class, uh, you know, middle class uh, Americans and favored very mightily the rich uh, and powerful in this country. Um, You know, and like I said, the Republicans in this case, um, more so than, you know, any whenever the party that is out of power is responding to the state of the union, uh, it, it tends to have a, a level of snarkiness to it uh, that you can actually feel. Uh, this one went just a little bit further than that. And um, the 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 hypocrisy and, and I, I use that word carefully uh, that one sensed from hearing the Republican response uh, clearly uh, was evident and clearly uh, was, in in my opinion, given with deliberate intention. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, they're, they're saying Biden didn't take responsibility for his failures. Uh, and, you know, the Republicans are definitely not going to give him credit for his successes so you know and and that that's the way this game is played so you know we will continue to watch and and see what happens as we move forward uh so you know keep it tuned keep it locked and we'll keep you informed and a few final points uh not to say the least um president biden's pick for the supreme court Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson 
uh, has started making her rounds of the Senate and House and the judicial committees of both bodies uh, as she works and the administration works to get her nomination to the Supreme Court approved uh, and replace uh, Justice Breyer, who is retiring at the end of the current uh, SCOTUS term. Uh, of course, interestingly enough and, and milestone worthy is the fact that Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, will be the first African-American uh, justice of the Supreme Court, should she be confirmed, uh, in the American history. Uh, that is a tremendous milestone, just one in you know, a series, if you consider that this president also nominated, the, uh, ran with the first African-American, Asian, Pacific American uh, vice president. So, you know, congratulations and, you know, Godspeed to Justice Brown Jackson. Uh, in addition, you know, other other elements uh, that are going on that uh, the war in Ukraine is trying to overshadow. Speaking of Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, on uh, March 6th, uh, she was part of a uh, delegation that was in Selma, Alabama to commemorate the 57th anniversary uh, of the uh, so-called Bloody Sunday March, where uh, a group of um, activists uh, and, and protesters were marching uh, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma when they were overrun by uh, Alabama State Police and National Guard, and uh, several people were injured. Uh, and all of this occurred uh, in the presence of television media, so it was broadcast live. And one of the things that came out of this, along with the broadcast images, uh, which really kind of cemented the power of uh, live televised uh, coverage of events in terms of uh, defining and shaping uh, political will in this country, was that it was shortly after this, and, and you know, with the images of those people being pushed back and uh, the broadcast image of a young John Lewis being uh, beaten by a uh, state police officer, an Alabama state police officer, uh, who, you know, of course, John Lewis would go on to become one of the most influential um, Congress people, you know, in the, the 20th and 21st centuries uh, in the United States. Um, so, you know, we, we saw that happen in, in real time. And uh, it, it is important that we recognize and keep these uh, events, not for their, their bloodiness, not for their shock value, but in the light of the efforts we see in terms of people modifying, uh, erasing, uh, 
you know, deconstructing American history um, and and so forth. Uh, we need to continue to to memorialize these events uh, to keep um, you know that that truth alive, to keep that history uh, a living part of of America. You know, yeah, it's not the it's not the greatest moments in our country, but it is part of our history. And you know, the the more people we can get to understand that history can consist of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and still have value, the better off our country will be, if, if we are being honest. Uh, so that that's going to wrap up this edition of the Fired Up podcast. Thank you all for, for downloading, for listening. Uh, please make sure, go back and, and grab additional episodes. We're on Spotify. We're on uh, iTunes. Uh, you can get us for you know Google Podcast. Uh, just go and search for Fired Up or search for WJMS Radio, and you'll find us there. So we look forward to our next episode. In the meantime, if you have comments, please send an email to the show. I appreciate getting your communications. Uh, you can reach us at FiredUpRadio at Yahoo.com. And of course, our Facebook page on Facebook.com is Fired Up Radio also. That's going to do it. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking and presenting to all of you again in seven days. Mm-hmm.